You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Shona from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And today I will be joined with two amazing women, Kate Houghton, President and CEO of Critical Mass Young Adult Cancer Alliance, and Sarah Milberg, Senior Manager of Federal Affairs at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us, ladies. Well, first of all, congratulations on the first ever Young Adult Cancer Action Day. We'll get into what that means a bit later. But first, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Kate, can you start? Yes, so I, I'm so thrilled to – actually, this is my first podcast uh, recording, and I am so thrilled that it's with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society because I was actually diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia when I was 27 years old. I had no idea what that meant. My family is pretty healthy, and I was an athlete and, you know, traveled for work but always had a, a pretty good health, healthful living, and the – news of a cancer diagnosis while in the midst of my career and the midst of kind of getting my life together was just so shocking. Actually, my husband and I had just bought our first house six weeks before I was diagnosed with cancer, which for a 27-year-old is what we're supposed to be doing. But, you know, cancer doesn't know age. It doesn't know zip code. It doesn't even care what site it's being diagnosed in. It's never a good opportunity to have cancer. So we we were actually very, very lucky, and I was treated at Johns Hopkins University. When I was diagnosed, there had been no new treatments in 40 years, and through the BEAT AML program, which is just phenomenal that LLS is working on that. There's now you know, almost maybe almost a dozen in the pipeline, and it's just incredible to see the work of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And so I run Critical Mass, the Young Adult Cancers Alliance. And what we focus on is the needs that are specific to the young adult cancer experience. While I can very confidently speak about the leukemia experience, you all are fortunate to have advocates like the Leukemia Lymphoma Society who are 100% focused on just that disease and curing those cancers. But when I came to Washington to advocate and talk with people and to think about how we create policy change for young adults, there was no advocacy organization that existed just specifically to the young adult cancer needs. So for us, things like buying your house, student loans, fertility preservation, it doesn't matter what disease you're diagnosed with. 
that's an issue for every single person in that population. And no one was speaking out about those issues. So we picked up, moved the operation to Washington, D.C. And just a year after we introduced our first bill about student loan deferment, we hosted our first action day. And Sarah and I just actually came from the Capitol where we had close to 56 advocates from all over the country for a very, very first action day. So it was really just awe-inspiring. And now they're storming Congress, and it's just a fantastic day. What an amazing turn of events. I remember seeing you speak at CancerCon in 2017 about this issue, and you had so much passion for it. And now look where you are today. So that's incredible that you've gotten to where you are. Thank you. Sarah, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm Sarah Milberg. I'm with the LLS Office of Public Policy. We're based here in Washington, D.C., and we are filled with policy and advocacy experts who spend our time promoting LLS's mission across the country with lawmakers, so in Washington, in states. And we really work to break down barriers between cancer patients and their care. So we focus a lot on access to innovative treatments. We focus on research. And my role is on our federal affairs team. So I focus exclusively on Congress and the administration and really working to further our policy goals here in Washington on Capitol Hill. Great. So speaking of Capitol Hill, could you tell us a little bit more about this bill, H.R. 2976, the Deferment for Active Cancer Treatment Act? Yeah, I love this bill because, so to back up, my background is in public policy. I have a bachelor's in political science and a master's in public policy and was diagnosed with cancer well into my career working. I had worked in Congress. I'd worked for different political campaigns. So I love policy. I love advocacy days. I love having real people talk about real issues. I used to joke on the campaign trail, my favorite event to go to every single year was the Iowa State Fair because it was just so fun to be in the middle of the American populace and to really see their issues front and center and eat the food that they're eating and gain the 10 pounds you have to lose after you go to an Iowa State <laughs> Fair altogether. But, you know, it's, it's so incredible to see how one patient voice really created this bill. We brought a, a young adult cancer advocate, Sam Watson. She runs the SAM Fund. She was diagnosed with cancer. I believe she was 19 and then went through transplant when she was 21. She was diagnosed with a Ewing sarcoma. And she was on the brink of bankruptcy. This was obviously before the Affordable Care Act and before lifetime maximum caps and all these protections that we now have in place. And she ended up starting a nonprofit that specifically looked at avoiding bankruptcy for young adults impacted by cancer. And in the 15 years that she has been running the SAM Fund, she has dispersed more than $2 million to different young adults, just people, not institutions, not issues, to people, to just give them those one or two months of relief that they need to get out of the hole. Because as we know with the young adult cancer experience, we're not just impacted by one or two financial issues, it's all of them. There is no mm -hmm. safety net. We're told to be invincible. We're told to take that student loan, get that career, take that risk, start a new business, be an entrepreneur. All of that is really risky business. And unfortunately, for adolescents and young adults, the 15 to 39 population, if you get sick, it's going to be cancer. It's the leading cause of disease-related deaths for this age population. So it's a lot of risk with no safety net. She came to Washington because even with all the work she had done, she had never met a member of Congress. She had never talked to any elected official 
about her work and about the needs of young adults. So I brought her to Washington. She was the very first advocacy day that Critical Mass did here in Washington. We met with probably 12 different offices. We did a whole series of meetings, and as a person with a policy background, it was so strange to me that in every single meeting, she kept talking about student loans. And I'm like, you can get a, you can get a deferment for student loans for anything. You lose your job, you go back to school, you're disabled, you know, you're in a bad car accident and you need some relief, you go in the military. There are ways for you to get relief when you're dealing with a, a personal crisis, whether it's, whether it's health or not. And so I went back and I looked and no, she was completely right. There's no process for it. Because what, as we know with cancer, it's not the disease that's going to kill you. It could be the treatment. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't really qualify as disabled because our cancer wasn't the disability. It was the treatment that was the disability. And then we don't qualify as underemployed or unemployed because if, if you're in that category, you have to be looking for work. And for a leukemia population, I mean, yes, there are some cancers that you can work through treatment, but for a leukemia population, some of you are just living at a hospital for 35 days like I was. So you're not going to be looking for work, so no safety net. So I went and did rounds with members of Congress who I built relationships with throughout my career. I've played softball with them. I've been on, you know, Twitter chats with them. I've staffed them and done all kinds of, you know, been to all kinds of amazing places with them. And I was just talking about, I was like, I could not believe that cancer patients could not defer their student loans. And it was so funny. I told this story today, actually, to our advocates. When Ileana or Slayton, our bill sponsor, when I came to her and I said this, she got up, she looked at her staff member. She's like, that can't be true. Go look it up. He looked it up and came back and he's like, Congresswoman, no, there's no process for deferment. She has a PhD in education, so she's like, that's wrong, and we're going to fix it. Within a few months, on June 21st of 2017, it was introduced, and on June 21st, 2018, we have 56 different advocates here to advocate for H.R. 2976, the Deferment for Active Cancer Treatment Act, but it all began because one patient and one patient advocate told her story and told everyone's story. And it was that common thread and that common sense solution that really made this happen. But I always talk about Sam Watson because she's the inspiration for this bill. That's incredible. And one person really can make a difference. One person's voice does matter. So it's funny that you mentioned, you know, the story that you told. When I was telling people here at LLS about what I was doing today and the podcast that I was going to be recording with you, I was telling them about this bill and the fact that currently there's no process for deferment for active treatment. And they didn't believe me either. And they're like, mm-hmm. no way, that can't be true. So this is an incredible issue that you're bringing to the forefront. So Sarah, what will LLS be doing today? Yeah, we've been really thrilled to partner with Kate and with Critical Mass kind of along the way um, as Critical Mass has been taking a greater policy role in D.C. Uh, so both me and another colleague of mine, Liza Holder, from our Office of Public Policy are on the Hill today joining meetings to advocate for the bill. We also have an advocate in town from Minnesota who's on the Hill today. And so we're really just helping out where we can to help make sure members of Congress and their staff hear about this, hear about this issue, know that it's important that this, uh, this issue be solved and that this bill really creates a bipartisan, straightforward way to do that. Great. What will Critical Mass be doing today, Kate? really supporting our advocates today, making sure that they know where to go and they know how to 
talk to members of Congress because that could be a kind of scary thing. And, you know, unfortunately, with the 24-hour news cycle and not a lot of moderate voices out there right now, you know, the Capitol Hill could be a scary place. And so we're trying to make it fun and relaxing. We brought in speakers from all different backgrounds. We had a, a member of the Biden Cancer Initiative come in and talk about storytelling. We had two young women, a, a deputy chief of staff and a, a former deputy chief of staff who came in and just talked about what it is to be a staffer hearing these stories. What is it that worked and what didn't work for them and give our advocates some best practices. But really what we're trying to do with this first ever Young Adult Cancer Action Day is really start having a conversation with our elected officials about the unique needs faced by young adults after a cancer diagnosis. Because it's not just student loans, that's one example, but it's also fertility preservation. And that treatment can cause a uh, a compromised reproductive system, but in 50% of cases, providers never have the conversation. And it has a lot to do with the fact that fertility preservation is not covered by insurance. This is a unique need. This is a unique challenge for young adults who may have been on a path, you know, to have a family, but they're 17 and now they have testicular cancer. And what does that mean? We hear about with young women, especially, how do they tell a partner that they can never have children? You know, you, do you talk about that on your first date or your second date? And then there's just all the fact that young adults do not qualify for our traditional healthcare safety nets. They're too young to be on, you know, on disability or to be on any a CMS program. And they're also too old to be on a CMS program because they're between 18 and 39. So they're way away from retirement age. They're way away from those safety net programs that, you know, we invest in as taxpayers. And there's just a critical lack of awareness on the research side. When we first came to Congress last year, in the beginning of 2017, there had never been any money appropriated from Congress to study young adult cancers, understand the unique biology, and try to do something different. Because the survival rates for young adults is the same as it's been for the last 40 years. So for somebody like me who was diagnosed with AML, to where there was no treatment in 40 years, and a young adult where survival rates haven't improved in 40 years, that is a tough pill to swallow when you're sitting in a bed getting pumped full of all kinds of carcinogens that are supposed to be helping you. And, you know, it should not, when we look at the young adult population, their survival rates have flatlined in comparison to older adults who see a 25% improvement since the 1990s. And children, when the war on cancer began, had a 15% survival rate, and now they're well above the 90s. So, you know, to have absolutely no improvement is, it should be shocking to folks. And so we really talk about the lack of awareness, lack of research funding. We were thankfully able to get some research funding through the Department of Defense, which is another program that Critical Mass and LLS partner on. The LLS is such an incredible partner to the young adult cancer community. I cannot speak more highly of an organization really walking the walk and talking the talk about representing underserved, underrepresented populations and really trying to break down barriers. We're doing that too, and it's because of LLS's support. And together, we work on the Defense Health Appropriations Act, which actually has money set aside for rare tumors, diseases that aren't typically studied, may not, you know, be profitable on the private market, but they also look at unique needs, like the unique needs of young adults. And it just so happens that the military healthcare system covers service members, their spouse, and children, 
which is 86% are between the ages of 15 and 39. And so we're able to get some research through the Department of Defense, but nothing through our traditional mechanisms, NIH, NCI, clinical trials. There's still no dedicated source of funding for research. And we know, I mean, the BEAT AML program is a classic example of this. When you put everybody together and you try to solve a problem, you can do it. But right now, the young adult cancer community doesn't even have a table to sit at. And that's what we're really trying to change. I've just recently read an article that you wrote for The Hill, and you were saying how this is unfair that all this progress has been made with all these other cancers, and to come out and say we've made so much progress, and then to leave out this group, this young adult group that hasn't seen any progress, is unfair. Well, just on that point, thank you for really getting a message out of that. I mean, to be honest, I wrote that op-ed in complete shock because the NCI and American Cancer Society are two big cancer research proponents, cancer treatment, cancer cure. They do an annual benchmark report, and it's called the Annual Report to the Nation on the Status of Cancer. And they break down everything by race, by ethnicity, by gender. And they had an entire section dedicated to pediatric patients 14 and younger, which represent about 1% of all new cancer incidences each year. But they did not say one single word about young adults, not about the survival rates being flatlined. And shockingly, the colorectal cancer cases and the cervical cancer cases in young adults, those mortality rates have actually increased. And it didn't even get a mention in the Mm. annual report on the status of cancer to the nation. I mean, that is just a glaring example. I mean, it's so hard when you're diagnosed with cancer because you're not a pediatric patient, you're not an adult patient, there's no trials, there's no young adult oncology, no young adult treatments, and then to be just completely just left off. I mean, as I said in that op-ed, in a democracy like ours, there's something worse than losing, and it's not being counted at all. Right, exactly. And it speaks to why uh, advocacy for this group is so important and why advocates like you are so important. Could you talk more about the importance of advocacy, uh, specifically who can be advocates? Everybody can be an advocate. This is the best part. Everybody has a unique story. And the question to my advocates is always, where does your story fit in? It's not how does your story fit a cause or a mission. It's how can you tell your story in a way that it advances any mission? Even today, we had folks in the room who have never didn't have student loan issues, but they had other financial issues. And they can talk about the unique needs of the young adult cancer population and showcase how there are unique needs, there are unique barriers. And this is one, and it's one that Congress can act on immediately with very little, very little monetary. There's no budget. There's no loan forgiveness. There's no money associated with it. It doesn't change the terms of the loan. It should be common sense policy. So we love having people just of any background really share their story and then with us, and then we figure out how best to use it. It might not be on student loans. It could be on fertility preservation. We can also find different places for people to advocate. Some people are great in person. They are passionate, and they will walk the halls of Congress, and they will knock on every door. Some folks don't love that. They would much rather put something up on Facebook. They might tweet something. Maybe they'd like to host a fundraiser, get involved with team and training, or light the night. These are things that, as advocates, we can do at every level, everywhere we are. Advocacy really starts when you're able to tell your story 
to somebody that you know across the table. And actually, one of the things that we're, we told our advocates right before they broke is that after they do this action day, that they have two postcards in their little books and, or their kits. And one is so that they can follow up with the office that they met with and write their representative to say, please support this bill. And one is to give it to somebody in their community, teach them what they learned, and help make them an advocate. Everybody can be an advocate, but it's up to advocacy organizations like LLS and Critical Mass to really give them the tools and the confidence to take that leap from being a patient to an advocate. Kate, I completely agree with that. And to echo what you said, you know, absolutely anyone can be an advocate, whether you've had, you know, cancer yourself, whether you've had it in your family, whether your friend has had cancer, whatever your experience may be, if you have a voice and experience to share and want to find a way to be empowered to do that, Advocacy is such a great way to, to really channel that because, you know, even just using Sam Watson's experience, you know, one person's story or one person's experience can absolutely shape public policy and can make a huge difference. But what also is incredible about advocacy is once one person starts sharing their story and uh, others hear about it, suddenly you get a bit of a tidal wave effect going where, you know, I may say, oh, I heard Kate share her story. I want to share mine now because I saw Kate do it. And now suddenly you have a big group of people and you find, you know, common allies and people who have been through things that you've been through also. And it's a great way to build a community, but also to really affect change in a way that can be incredibly powerful and can really make a difference in how policy is made and how, uh, how things work around here. And Sarah, you just reminded me of something Mr. McGovern, Jim McGovern from Massachusetts, who dropped by our action day this morning, something he said to our advocates. He said, you're the teachers. And, you know, you teach Congress, you teach staff, you teach them what the issues are. And I, I had this thought when I was in grad school, and again, specifically just looking at public policy, how a bill becomes a law, but a little bit more in depth than the Schoolhouse Rock version. We really talk about how in public policy, you have an ethical responsibility, a moral responsibility, because 99% of the time, the issues that you enact, the legislation you pass, and implement, that is never going to affect you. You're not going to ever apply for food stamps, for instance. Maybe you'll never get a Pell Grant. You're never going to do, you know, something very specific that has a, a very small budget. But you will still have to think about yourself as the 99%. You still have to put yourself in that person's shoes because it does affect people. And it, it really, that's really how Congress operates. They they have so many issues that they're dealing with every day, all day. Actually, today there's a huge vote on the floor on immigration, and there's protests and just all kinds of groups coming together. And and it's great and it's wonderful and it's inspiring. But we still need to get our student loan bill done, too. <laughs> they need to walk and chew gum. But it can be so easy sometimes really to get bogged down on a single issue because they're there, they're present, they're knocking on those doors. And it doesn't matter if immigration is a hot topic, we need to not be knocking on those doors too and saying, hey, hey, Congress, there's these cancer patients over there who, you know, might default on their loans. And that's really going to hurt the American economy, not just, you know, one patient, one family. And also to add to that too, I think that's also the tremendous value of advocacy is you really can not only amplify your own story, but the stories of those who can't necessarily advocate on their on their own behalf, who may be going through treatment or no longer with us, being that that spokesperson for, be it, you know, the young adult experience or the blood cancer patient experience, saying, this is what happened to me and this is what I experienced and this is what needs to change. 
And there's so many other who, you know, experienced similar things that I did and can't be here today or aren't here today. And I'm here on their behalf too. And really that constant amplification of people's stories of, uh, you know, having the courage to come forward and say, you know, this happened to me and things need to change and be better. You know, that's what really breaks through and helps, uh, you know, break through the noise of all the other things going on on Capitol Hill or in a state capitol. Um, it's just that constant storytelling and constant advocacy to really make a difference. Sarah, could you tell us a little bit more then about the role that patient advocates have played in cancer research and maybe how that role has evolved over time? Absolutely. Cancer patients have been at the core of advancing research and also other policies just across the country. Most notably, the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, has seen steady funding increases over the last few years, due in no small part to the role of advocates, to LLS advocates, uh, to patient advocates across the country, um, really advocating for change. And so this past year, NIH received a new $3 billion in research funding. A good portion of that went to the National Cancer Institute. And that's just incredibly helpful in keeping the science moving forward. Uh, creating the space for researchers to get involved in cancer research. And it, we really are excited to see that progress continue, uh, both with uh, the cancer moonshot and other really exciting happenings at the NIH. Uh, but what's been really exciting, too, is uh, the role of patient advocates in research funding has really shifted over the years, too. So we're traditionally, uh, we've had advocates, you know, really uh, rally for funding for the NIH, and we continue to. Uh, there's also been an increasing role for patients at the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA. LLS has actually been a leader in this space. Uh, so just to give a recent example, uh, just two years ago, LLS launched a survey to really understand in the acute myeloid leukemia population what patients and their caregivers want from their treatment, patient preferences study. And just a couple months ago, we had the opportunity to present results from the survey uh, to leadership and staff at the FDA. And things like that are a different way to advocate because it's giving uh, the people approving new drugs and new treatments a new perspective on what to consider and how patients want their treatment to go, what, um, you know, as they're weighing different options, what they prefer in their treatment outcomes. I was a part of that survey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's it's a really cool way to try try different ways of getting, you know, the patient perspective into the research world, where it's not just about, you know, the biology of how we – uh, work to treat cancer, but it's about what patients who can get out of this, you know, what what side effects are are tolerable, what's maybe a step too far, what can be improved in how uh, care is delivered, you know, what patients are really looking for as a way to really make sure that the new treatments coming on the market are ones that, you know, patients want to see also. So it's just a, a new approach that we're taking. We still those traditional paths of advocating for funding at the NIH or even the Department of Defense, as Kate mentioned earlier. Those avenues are, are still there and will always be there. Uh, but one thing LLS has been a real pioneer in is how do we get creative with this and how do we kind of strike a path forward that gives us more ways to show what patients want out of their treatments, out of the research coming out of um, the federal government, um, you know, what, what can we really do to make sure patients are a part of the equation at every step of the way? Great. Thank you for answering that. So I know you guys have a busy day ahead of you. Um, do you have any more last-minute takeaways or advice to our listeners regarding young adult cancer and advocacy or advocacy in general? I'll say just to kick it off, again, just to echo, anyone can be an advocate. If you've experienced something, you know, in the cancer world and and want to see a change or want to just make sure people know that, you know, things happen, 
you know, advocacy is a great path for that. Certainly our LLS advocacy network is across the country. We're, we're always here from the staff side and also from uh, advocates across the country. We're always here to be a resource uh, and certainly checking us out on Facebook and Twitter through our LLS advocacy pages is a great way to get started. And we also do have a mobile network as well where you can uh, get text updates from us in addition to email updates and um, really great ways to stay in touch with staff and hear what's going on. Uh, but really, everybody's story matters. Uh, one story really can make a difference. And if you're even considering, you know, getting involved in advocacy, you know, just give it a try. See if it's something that you find rewarding and, you know, see if that can really be a fulfilling way to share your cancer journey. I'll just say as a, as a final thought on our end that, you know, sharing your story is not easy. It's, it's a very scary process. And I know that personally when I was, when I was actually participating in that the LLS survey that Sarah mentioned, we had to talk about things like PTSD, which isn't on a label. That's not something a pharmaceutical company is going to necessarily be able to quantify. But every one of us there found it to be a side effect. And there are things like that that just don't get listed because they're not considered connected to the experience. Telling your story and, and getting all that information out is hard. It's, it is not easy. When I was offered the job for critical mass, I was very concerned and had to do a lot of soul searching to see if I was going to have the strength to tell my story every day, all day to different groups and, and that vulnerability. But what drew me, drew me to the job was just that there's, there was no voice. There was, if I didn't do it, there's no one in Washington ready to go right away with the experience as both a professional and a patient. And I took the leap, and it's the best thing I've ever done with my personal life or my professional life. And and it's just an, it's an incredible experience to wake up every day and, and take these stories and, and try to turn, turn them into solutions. And that's one of the reasons why at this Action Day, we just announced that we're going to start a new storytelling program for young adults it's called Bridge the Gap. And it's all about how to make the young adult cancer experience count. And we're going to actually help teach young adults how to do that very, very first tell of their story. Because, you know, words like FDA and Congress and marching and protesting, and it, it can be very scary. And you almost need a, a degree just to get through the acronyms that are in the medical field, let, a, let alone the ones in Congress and in the government. And so what we want to do is empower our patients. We'd like to say we're not a patient advocacy organization, we're a patient empowerment organization. We have the tools and the resources to help patients tell their story, and we're going to try it in all different types of mediums. So because we, we know that it's not necessarily knocking on doors. It could be making phone calls. It could be running that in the light of night. It could be tweeting, or it could be changing your career and becoming an advocate like so many of us have done, or, or researchers, or even physicians. We have one a good friend, he's now a good friend, we worked in the same company, but in two different locations, but never ran into each other, had cancer around the same time. He actually, great career, went back to get a biology degree so that he could go to med school so he could be a young adult cancer doctor because when he was in treatment, he realized how important it was to have physicians also be advocates for patients in this population. And so we don't know where your story is going to fit, but we want to make sure that we can find a path for you that you're comfortable with, you feel empowered by, and will actually make a difference. Because it really is the patient experience that becomes that change agent necessary to break down barriers.
And for more information about Bridge the Gap and just what Critical Mass is doing, I would really encourage your listeners to check out our website at criticalmass.org. It's a great landing page for anyone, young adult, newly diagnosed, where we talk through the entire young adult cancer journey from diagnosis through treatment. And we really pull out what's unique, what questions you need to ask, why you need to ask those questions. And we even have downloadable questionnaires that you can take to appointments because I don't know about your listeners, but sometimes the chemo brain can get way too intense in the midst of trying to listen to your doctor. So we want to make sure that somebody with you can write stuff down to those, the answers to those questions. And of course, every advocate should follow us on social media. We're at Hey Critical Mass. That's Hey, H-E-Y, Critical Mass. Like our, it's our organization name. And right now, if you logged on, you'd see all of our action day tweets, but we also use it as a method to educate and make people aware. We share a lot of patient stories on there. We also share some critical facts and compelling messages so that people are really starting to understand that young adults can and do get cancer and their cancer is different, which means their needs are different. And together we can really solve this problem. Well, I'm certainly inspired after talking with you two and I hope our listeners will be as well. Thank you so much for taking time today to join us on this podcast. Good luck with the rest. Yeah, good luck with the rest of Action Day and Storming the Hill. And I look forward to seeing the outcome of this bill. Yes, thank you. And thank you to LLS and your community for all the support. We greatly appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.